there. Welcome to this episode of Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with me, Ken MacDonald. I'm a barrister at Matrix Chambers and a former director of public prosecutions. And with me, Tim Owen, also a barrister at Matrix Chambers, specialising in crime, public law and human rights law. Our guest for this week's episode is Claire Montgomery, King's Counsel. She's probably known to almost everybody who's already listening to this podcast. Um, and she is a very good and old friend of both Ken and me, and also a professional colleague at Matrix. She was one of the founder members uh, back in 2000. But now Claire is a notoriously modest person, and so it'll be down to me to blow her trumpet and uh, explain to a few of you listening who may not know that Claire has been hailed as a star at the bar for as long as I can recall. She's rated as a leading silk in a ridiculously large number of practice areas by the legal directories, ranging from corporate and business crime, extradition and mutual assistance, public law, proceeds of crime, and human rights law. In addition, she's the editor with Professor David Ormrod of the leading textbook on fraud law and procedure, as well as the leading textbook on extradition law. She sits as a deputy high court judge, and she's also a judge of the Jersey on the Jersey and Guernsey Court of Appeal. The latest edition of the Legal 500 quotes someone saying, the only way to describe her is one down from God. She can do anything. Um, Claire, uh, Claire, we mere mortals welcome you to Double Jeopardy. I find that rather an intimidating introduction, actually. We're, we're actually doing a podcast with God's assistant. This is... Slightly alarming, Claire. It just shows people will say anything in the directories. None of it is true. Yeah. Well, I think most of it's true in your case. We're going to focus uh, in this session on a subject very close to your heart, namely how we in England and Wales are doing at investigating and prosecuting fraud, in particular serious and complex fraud. But before we get on to that, can we just ask a, a few sort of more personal background questions. Um, where, when did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? I'd always wanted to be a lawyer from the point when my parents told me that I argued so much it was the obvious career for me and that was about 12. But I, 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 I am the only lawyer in my family, indeed in my extended family, so uh, I don't think any of them had any idea as to the difficulty of the task they were presenting me with at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I mean so you you were set on that from the age of twelve. Well, uh, not in a, in a way it was a bit like wanting to, uh, some boys want to be train drivers. I wanted to be a barrister. Um, it, it was not for any good reason. I had no idea what they actually did, other than argue a lot. Uh, and uh, and I've said in the introduction, obviously you've got a huge range of uh, practice areas in which you excel. But but why did you? focus on crime, because that's probably the thing that you're most well known for, and you know, it probably takes up a significant part of your practice, and always has done. So really by accident. So I set out to be a commercial lawyer or a common lawyer, and I wasn't good enough in my first three sets of six months training as a pupil. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get a fourth period of training in a criminal set. And uh, uh, it, it was like a light going on for me. I really enjoyed the work. I took great pleasure out of representing individuals and the sort of factual 
tussling that most so-called serious lawyers find boring. And I found that really fascinating. And it was, to me, there was no going back after that. And what I, what I then found best about it was a lot of the law was completely unformed. So you had this real chance, not just to look at interesting facts, but also to make some or create some principles where previously there'd been a bit of a blank. Yeah, I'd like to beat the person who decided you weren't good enough, Claire. It's a bit like meeting the person who declined to sign the Beatles in... <laughs> 1961. I, I have watched jealously my fellow pupils just to make sure that they weren't doing too well. But one of the things about criminal law then, certainly when I started, I was called in 78 and it was distinctly seen as the kind of shabby end of the market. I mean, I, I always wanted to specialise in crime and people thought that was a bit crazy because most criminal lawyers in those days did a mixture of common law, didn't they? And they the, the concept of criminal silk hadn't really been invented. Silks who were good, were good in other areas also did a bit of crime. And it, it's changed completely now, hasn't it? Crime is now a real and respectable specialisation at the bar. Yeah, so, so I, I lived through that change as well. Um, when I started, I think there were literally a handful of silks who specialised in crime. And as you say, it was regarded as rather a grubby outpost that nobody really wanted to occupy. But... Uh, I, I, can't, I can't say necessarily that our public standing has increased much over the period, but <laughs> certainly the perception that there's a real job to be done has changed. I mentioned the fact that you sit as a Deputy High Court judge, like both Ken and I do as well, and you're also on the, on the Guernsey, Guernsey and Jersey Court of Appeal. But um, I'm presuming you, you've given up the idea of becoming a full-time judge. No, I, I never wanted to be a judge. It's uh, one of those curiosities that... Most barristers are assumed to immediately hanker after being appointed to some judicial office, and I've just never had the, the desire. I, I love representing clients. I like the collegiality of the bar, and uh, you lose all that when you go on the bench. I'm very happy to do it part-time, but I've got no interest in doing it full-time. And I've got to ask you this question, because it's recently been announced that Lisa Ossofsky, the Director General of the SFO, is, is standing down when her term ends next year. Um, what are the chances of you applying to become the Director General of the SFO? Uh, they are nil. <laughs> <laughs> why, why would you want to be? Yes. Well, well I, I can tell you, I can tell you, Claire, that being Chief Prosecutor is an extremely satisfying <laughs> and engaging career. And I, I recommend you think again about that, because I think you'd be a fantastic Director of the SFO. And you, <laughs> you might turn it round, you could perform a wonderful public service, and you could change the way all of this is done um, in England and Wales. So there's a, a, a decent and respectable ambition for you. Well, I, I have well, to disagree with you, Ken. I, I, I don't think <laughs> it's within the grasp of any mere mortal to turn around an institution that has so many structural and systemic problems. Uh, but thanks for the offer. <laughs> No, let, let's move on to this question of, of how our criminal justice system is doing at the investigation and prosecution of fraud. Um, and, and just by way of background, I'm sure many people listening to this understand it, but I mean, fraud, bribery, corruption, money laundering and so on, the investigation and prosecution of those offences is, is divided, the responsibility is divided in effect between the National Crime Agency, the Crown Prosecution Service and the Serious Fraud Office. Um, and Serious Fraud Office is, is the specialist unit set up from 1987 on the Roskill model following Lord Roskill's report into fraud trials to set up a specialist 
uh, investigation and prosecution unit combining skills of investigators, accountants, and prosecutors to have a sort of single approach to investigating this specialist area of fraud. And you, Claire, were called in 1980, and you were involved all through the 80s and some and 90s in some major uh, fraud cases, Guinness, Maxwell. Were you in Blue Arrow as well? No, I think. didn't do Blue Arrow. But you were in Guinness and Maxwell. And, so you lived through your career, the, the, the whole lifetime, really, of the, of the SFO from 1987. And we'll get on to effectiveness and some detail in a second. But, I mean, over that period of some almost 40 years now since you were called, what are the main developments or changes that you've observed in the way we investigate and prosecute fraud? I think there's overall been a reasonably steady and constant decline in the level of interest in prosecuting fraud from about 1990 onwards, so that it's got lower and lower down the agenda for both the investigative bodies, whether that's the police or other agencies like the regulators of various sorts or the um, Department of Trade now, obviously Department department charmingly known as bees. Uh, but uh, over that period, other things have taken priority. Fraud just isn't that exciting. And insofar as it has excited any interest, it's mainly at the margins in areas like um, proceeds of crime in relation to now in the modern time sanctions or in relation to uh, occasionally providing assistance to foreign governments. All of that does get attention and some sort of resource at the investigative level. But in terms of actually having police officers interested in fraud, that has been subject to a decline now where I don't believe they have any interest in prosecuting fraud anywhere and the sort of localism that's been introduced by crime commissioners directing activities by local forces has, has reinforced that, so that now fraud is absolutely at the bottom of anyone's agenda. You're, dealing, you're talking there more about um, fraud other than serious complex fraud. I, I, th I, think, I, think this, I think the same is true for serious complex fraud. I mean, the reality is that uh, if we take, for example, Guinness and Maxwell trials, which were the two big show trials of the 80, late 80s and 90s, and indeed Blue Arrow, uh, they all started with what was then Department of Trade or the business department's uh, company's investigation powers. So, so you had a really powerful investigative tool being used by, at the direction of a really well-established company, Queen's Council, as they would have been then, and you then have that picked up by the serious fraud office. They spend a lot of money on making sure it's properly resourced. And you have long but reasonably effective trials which don't fail because of technical reasons uh, insofar as they, they led to acquittals or the cases not being completed. They were for legitimate criminal law reasons rather than lack of resource or significant error uh, and so that's that's just gone we don't get those sort of big companies investigations the, the 
company investigations occasionally, if, if, if it leads to insolvency, may lead to some activity, but there isn't the same level of interest at that sort of uh, state level. And then the remaining investigative activity should fall to classical police forces, typically originally the City of London police. But again, uh, genuinely, uh, and indeed even within the NCA, which obviously has investigators and police officers sitting side by side, although they talk the talk that fraud's important, the reality is that if there's a choice between resources that go on terrorism or now sanctions or child abuse, that's what's going to get the attention. Fraud is absolutely at the yeah. bottom of the pile. I mean, this is a this is a problem at all levels, isn't it? I mean, at the, at the high level, uh, if the sort of high-end investigations that you're talking about are not taking place, then this really strikes at Britain's reputation as a kind of rule of law due process state in which it's safe to do business at high level. And that has significant adverse impacts on our economy, if that's the sort of idea that gets around. But at the, at the lower level, people out there don't believe if they're defrauded that the state's going to do anything about it. And that that undermines public confidence uh, in criminal justice and in the state, I think, and in state institutions in a very profound way. Um, so so this is this is politically and economically serious, as well as serious in justice terms. Absolutely. I, I, and it particularly falls, the burden of it particularly falls on those who are least able to assert their rights. So although at the high end, I've pointed to the lack of state intervention, the reality is that if you are defrauded but are wealthy, there are things that you can do to vindicate your position. You can bring an action in the commercial court claiming damages. You can even, in extremists, bring a private prosecution. Uh, and both of those things happen. Uh, and if you were to wander down to the Rolls building and look at the business of the commercial court, you, you'd see that much of it is concerned with things that otherwise might just as well feature as count one and two on an indictment somewhere. But because there's no will to drive them forward as, as criminal matters, indeed, the victim often doesn't want them dealt with as criminal matter because that will just interfere with their ability to secure recovery and to negotiate with the person who's defrauded them. Um, they have some recourse. It's, it's the low-level frauds. It's the people losing their £10,000 in life savings that I think is really being largely ignored. You get the occasional show trial in that area, but the reality is that 99% of fraud at that level is not even investigated, still less prosecuted. But can I just pick you up on something you said, because you were contrasting the what you, you described as the big city trials, Maxwell, Guinness, and so on, with what goes on today. But I mean... Obviously, the success rate and the outcome in these cases has been uh, mixed, to, to say the least. But the SFO has investigated and prosecuted either individuals or pure de deferred prosecution agreements in relation to big players, Barclays, ESCO, Serco, the long-running investigation into ENRC, the Uniroyal case, Glencore, and so on. I mean, we'll come on in a minute to, to, to examine some of the failures and what was revealed 
in that process. But it's it's not the case, is it, that these big players are not being investigated? It, it's more that they are a, a minute fraction of, of the case that, that could be brought. So that um, what's happening is you have a burgeoning industry of fraud, which affects all corners of society. And you have a highly selective, often randomly selected handful of cases that will be subject to scrutiny. Uh, and obviously, the type of cases will also reflect whatever the latest political area of concern is, so that you'll find that um, the SFO, under pressure from the OECD, developed an interest in prosecuting corruption, particularly overseas corruption, uh, where formerly in the in the prior to this century, there'd been no real interest in looking into those areas. So, and some of the cases you mentioned would would fall under that description. So, I'm not saying nothing is happening. My concern is that nothing of any substance is happening that that would actually deter certainly a professional fraudster or even deter the more normal fraudster who commits a fraud, which is somebody who, who's willing to do dishonest things in the course of business, not necessarily because they've set out to be a criminal, but because they're sufficiently selfish and self-interested not to care about the rights of others. But that there's enough, if I were inclined to to live my business life in that way, I don't think I'd be very scared of anything that's available to bring me to book. I was looking in preparation for, for this uh, this recording, I, I, I was looking at the 2019 report by the Crown Prosecution Service Inspectorate the, who produced a report on case progression in the SFO. And while pointing out uh, numerous concerns about uh, management and case progression. The summary at the beginning uh, said this, it would be wrong to read this report negatively and form the view that the SFO is ineffective. It is not. There are undoubtedly ways the SFO can improve, but for the most part, it already has in place the frameworks within which the necessary improvements can be achieved. However, this depends on getting staff to comply with processes and be consistent on line management being more effective, and on better and more quality control. Achieving those changes within a departmental structure following civil service rules in a reasonable time will be challenging. That was the inspectorate view in October 2019. And of course, earlier this year, uh, three years later, we've had two reports, two reviews. One, the Calvert-Smith review, prepared in response to the disastrous collapse of the uh, overturning of convictions in the Uniroyal case, and then the report by Brian Altman into the collapse of the Serco G4S trial. And those two reports reveal a, a pretty extraordinary uh, and a devastating tale of, of incompetence and failures, particularly in relation to disclosure. Now, <sighs> Looking back at what was being said in 2019, do you think that that was self-evidently um, a, a rather over-optimistic assessment of effectiveness? Well, the the um, uh, inspectors are back in. I think that they, if if they're good to their word, which they uh, published, 
there will have been an inspection to follow up on those points now. Um, so one has to await their, their verdict as whether there have been the sort of sweeping changes of culture that they suggested were required. Uh, but in a way, I think that the focus that we've seen on, for example, disclosure problems, if that were the only difficulty, is something that could be solved reasonably straightforwardly. I've, I've personally never seen the purpose in the sort of painstaking disclosure analysis that needs to be conducted, certainly in the context of serious fraud cases. Uh, judges, when the whole idea of disclosure first became prominent, decried the idea that the defence should be given the keys to the warehouse, but that was primarily driven by two concerns. One was the cost to the public purse if defenders were to do that work, and secondly, obviously they didn't say this, but uh, secondly, uh, by the concern that the prosecution might be ambushed because they weren't really sure what was in the unused material, and if they hadn't themselves gone through it and worked out what they thought was relevant, then there was a danger that the prosecution would be caught napping. Now, neither of those difficulties seem to me to justify the present overwhelming need to change the, the rules on disclosure in serious fraud cases because it is simply a waste of effort to have that sort of view carried out. The, the defence, in my view, ought to be given the keys to the warehouse. They won't be paid for it because the structure of our legal aid system means that if they're on legal aid, they, they won't get properly remunerated for it, but it'll be their duty to do the work. If they're privately paying, they will be remunerated for it, but they won't be able to recoup the costs from the government because the rules about defence costs in the event of acquittal have all changed. So I don't think cost is an issue. And uh, frankly, they're going to have to resort to machine learning in the way the SFO are to carry out the review in any event. But more importantly, you could just have a rule that says before the trial, the defence has to identify each item in the unused that it, it is considering deploying a trial with an explanation as to why it's deploying it, and you'd solve the problem. No, no bombshells for the prosecution and no need to have this completely duplicative effort by disclosure counsel of the sort that's caused so much trouble in the SFO recently. Well, I must say, Claire, I completely agree with you about this. I mean, when you're, when you're prosecuting cases of this size, the question of disclosure becomes a complete nightmare and, a, and a, a, a very large proportion of those cases that Tim's been talking about that have collapsed at trial, um, big SFO cases, big CPS cases have collapsed precisely because of failures in the disclosure process. And, and, and the, the reality is that when you're dealing with this sort of quantity of material, warehouses of material, you're almost bound to make some errors. And we've all seen in abusive process arguments how the defence, and we've all done it ourselves in cases, can pick on a disclosure failure to undermine uh, the entire prosecution on the sort of basis that if they failed here, they probably failed elsewhere, and how can this trial be fair, etc., etc. I mean, my fear when I was responsible for some of this sort of work was that we, we've got ourselves into a situation where some cases, um, far from being too big to fail, are too big to succeed. Uh, and the, the quantity of material is just unmanageable uh, for organisations that are as poorly resourced as our prosecution agencies. And I think actually the government should be putting more money in, but it should also, the parliament should also be looking at this question of disclosure and the process. Because I think the scheme that you've described with appropriate notice given by the defence as to what they intend to deploy is an obvious and actually quite simple 
way through it. I mean, I can remember the days when when uh, defence solicitors were paying Australian backpackers to sit in offices going through unused material with no great expectation that any of it would be used, but they could bill for it. Um, and, and so, you know, there have been abuses on both sides of this process, and it really does need looking at. I profoundly agree with what you've just said. And, and although I recognise there are problems in relation to sensitive personal data in other areas of offending, I, I can think of no reason uh, that there should be that restriction in relation to, to fraud cases. In the end, the only thing that's going to be in there is going to be commercially sensitive material. And, and that that's dealt with by the restrictions on use under the existing structure that means you can only use disclosed material for the purposes of the trial. Yes, of course, there'd be certain categories of material that have to be dealt with in a, a, a different way. But the bulk of this material is just, it's just paperwork. And somebody has to read it and somebody has to decide whether they want to deploy it. And but the idea that it's read by somebody who has no idea what the defence exactly. is well, often. It, I mean, in theory, they do know what the defence is, but the reality is that, that it's almost impossible to work out the utility of a particular document unless you're sitting as defence counsel with, with your own case theory and yeah. strategy. Yeah. So, so as you say, there will always be failures. Yeah, so that's an argument for, for this assessment being conducted by the defence rather than the prosecution, I agree. Yes, I mean, if you read Brian Altman's report into the collapse of, of G4S Serco case, his description of, of, the, of the fundamental sequence of, uh, of events, even the fundamental problem of non-disclosure of this particular report, which should be reviewed by three different reviewing council and being tagged and untagged as disclosable in the end was never disclosed until at the last minute trial council effectively told the court that it had no confidence in the disclosure process and sought an adjournment and by then the judge mrs justice tipples bearing in mind the investigation had begun i think in 2013 simply refused to grant the adjournment. But I mean, as a description of a process, it's just extraordinary. Can, can we move on to this question of um, the comparison with the way we do things as opposed to the way it's done in the USA? There was an article a, a couple of weeks ago in the Times, in the wake of the sentencing of Elizabeth Holmes for the Theranos fraud uh, case. And that article suggested, in effect, that the USA was, you know, in the Premier League at the top or acting as the sort of global policeman in relation to uh, fraud, citing the Theranos case, Bernie Madoff, Enron, WorldCom, Stanford banking business and the farmer bro Martin Shrelly, I think his name is, and those prosecutions as examples of how the US come in hard, effectively get cases uh, to trial quickly and heavy sentences impose. And, and the article contrasted that with the way we do it. Now, I, I think we all know that international comparisons are, are notoriously difficult. But based on your experience, Claire, what, what's your assessment of that comparison? How do we do? Well, we, we come second, uh, but there are significant structural differences, which I think do explain why we come second by quite a long way. And I'm just going to leave the institutions out of account for the moment. 
because I, I happen to think the American institution is also stronger, but I do think there are much more significant structural differences between the way these cases progress in the US. So the first comment I would make is that um, corporate responsibility is much easier to establish in the United States, that all you effectively need is somebody acting on behalf of the company, whatever they're standing in the company, that would be enough potentially to engage corporate liability. So companies have a much greater incentive to cooperate with the DOJ once their business is under scrutiny. Um, secondly, the by and large, the DOJ is evidence-led. They do not start with a grand case theory where they think, right, we have to get the company and the, and the chief executive officer. They start with, well, what have we got? And normally it's low-level people, but what they're able to do is to structure much more attractive deals with those low-level people because the power lies in the DOJ to do so, so that they can call somebody in who's middle management and give them the opportunity to be queen for the day. I've never really understood the root of the phrase, but it means they can come in, they can say what it is they'd be able to say to help the DOJ, and the DOJ can then decide whether they'd want to use it without any without prejudice so that it's it's a free hit for both sides to work out whether it's in their interest to try and do a deal but most critically uh, they are able to do that deal on their own without need for any extravagant process around it uh, and and the reason i picked that out as being a significant structural difference is that uh, the Serious and Organised Crime Prevention Act, which set up a structure for um, either offering a deal which involves no plea of guilty or alternatively offering a deal where there is a plea of guilty, but there's a significant reduction in sentence, have created this incredibly bureaucratic structure in the UK, which is hopeless for serious fraud. And its effect has been that basically the best the SFO can offer a middle manager who wants to cooperate is that he has to uh, plead guilty, take his chance that the judge will send him to prison, because normally he's pleading guilty to quite a serious offence, even if his role in it is relatively minor. And uh, I can't think of any circumstances in which I would advise a person to take that sort of personal risk for, for the uncertainty of the agenda and the period of time it'll take because these people have to wait typically for the trial of whoever they've implicated to take place or for there to be a decision there won't be a trial so they, their lives are on hold for two, three, four years, they are completely uncertain to what the outcome is going to be. And the whole process is designed to put off anyone who had any inclination to cooperate. Uh, and uh, personally, I think it is utterly counterproductive. I understand why the structure's there in organised crime because of the old problems around you know, master informers, the Bertie Smalls of the world who shopped 17,000 gangs of armed robbers and turned out to be making up half of it. Uh, but in serious fraud, that, that inability to offer a deal that's going to be attractive to an individual is catastrophic in my view. So that, that's another structural difference in the States. And then the final structural difference is that just generally the... DOJ are in a position to make a deal. 
that they are in, are in a position to deliver generally, even to people who want to fight, uh, an agreement that they will get X in terms of penalty, or if the judge thinks that's a bad idea, that the whole agreement will be undone. But, but there, there isn't really room for doubt. You're, you're not uh, effectively left to worry about what the court will do in the end. You are able to reach a deal, and the DOJ are willing to be pragmatic and commercial about it, whereas the SFO, rightly or wrongly, are bound by the Code for Crown Prosecutors that there are a set of uh, principled considerations they have to go through. They cannot bind the judge, and so the whole thing must go to the judge, whether it's on a DPA, whether scrutiny may be less, or whether it's on a plea of guilty, whether scrutiny may be more. But but that also is an unattractive prospect. So it means that you 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 don't get the chance to winnow down the cases they're going to fight as they do in the states, so that you do end up just with two trials on Theranos. The the as a, as I understand, it, the chief financial officer and the chief executive officer separately tried. But it means that you've you've been able to set up your case, you've got witnesses who are actually there who are willing to cooperate, who are able to go into the witness box, and you are able to clear the decks so that you end up having a, a real trial about real issues. And on, along the way, you've also accumulated a number of wins getting there. It's, it's just a completely different structure. Of course, this is all a, a product of, of the American system, which is very much directed towards settlement in criminal proceedings, in other words, guilty pleas. Um, and and it, it's not just in fraud, it's across organised crime, it's across the whole piece that all of the pre-trial processes are directed towards trying to get a plea. And trials are very few and far between in the United States, which means that really um, uh, the cases that do go to trial um, are cases where there is a, a real issue to be tried. And the conviction rate is high, much higher in the UK, I guess for that reason, because all of the weaker cases are weeded out by a plea. But I, I think you're right about the the unwieldy processes um, in, in, the, in the UK, partly driven by judicial concern that they don't want to cede power to prosecutors. Prosecutors shouldn't be allowed to make these decisions, it should be judges. And partly because of the fear that we've always had that people will be pressurised into pleading guilty when in fact they're innocent. And partly because of the kind of Bertie Smalls effect that you've referred to, and that man has a lot to answer for, that we regard um, informer evidence with uh, great suspicion. And all of that combines to make it very, very difficult to replicate the American system in England and Wales. I recall attending a working dinner with the then Solicitor General when he was uh, designing legislation around deferred prosecution agreements. And many of us took the view then, and we were talking to him about this, that we thought that the process was so elaborate uh, and so safety-driven um, and so uncertain for uh, putative defendants that it wouldn't be used as much as it could be. And it, it simply wouldn't be attractive to most people because too much was left uncertain. And the point about the American system is that uncertainty is banished at a pretty early stage and people can enter into these discussions with confidence. But it's a different legal philosophy, isn't it? It's a philosophy which says, we don't want trials, we want guilty pleas, and we'll do everything we can to secure them. And we've always been a bit nervous about that, because we've always felt that people should be making free, unfettered choices when it comes to pleading guilty or not pleading guilty. And we've always had a worry that people, innocent people, will feel bullied, um, and that will lead to unjust outcomes. So how do you, how do you answer that criticism? Well, 
I think it's a fair criticism. And my answer to it is it, it is those rights that you identify as being significant in a rule of law context have to be paid for. Uh, in the end, if you're going to have a system which places such significance on control of the power of the prosecutor and protection of individual freedoms, then you're going to have to resource it appropriately. And the problem is we, we, we don't do that. That one of the reasons that um, the, the, the UK with that philosophical bent is not able to achieve the same level of multiple investigations, multiple convictions, is because there just aren't the resources to do it. That e even if there, there weren't problems about you know, the sort of problems that the Crown Prosecution Service Inspectorate spoke about in the Serious Fraud Office, there just aren't the people there to, to carry the caseload that would replicate anything like what goes through, you know, even one district of the Department of Justice, you know, the Southern District in New York, say, I, I'm sure would carry a greater caseload than the SFO. I mean, that on, on this question of the ability to retain or to recruit and then to retain high quality people during the lifetime of an investigation, one of the things that comes out of, of the inspectorate reports and also the Altman and Calvert Smith reports is, is firstly the impression of very low morale, uh, very high turnover within the investigations, some of which last, you know, 10 years. And you have numerous case controllers and numerous changes of, of, of significant persons within an investigation team. Whereas in, in America, you get the impression that working uh, in the district attorney's department or in the, whether it's the Southern District of New York or, or other uh, departments, people go in there and stay for longer and see it as a real career path to a later in life, no doubt, a career in private practice, which will be more lucrative, but they see the period working uh, with the US attorney or the district attorney's department as, as a key pathway to success, a high quality route to success. Well, they, they do also have quite a high turnover. I mean, it's well known that, for example, of the you know top 10% of graduates of the Harvard Law School, a certain proportion will go and become assistant US attorneys because that's a highly prestigious um, position, but many of them will only stay four or five years and then go off into Wall Street. Some stays, some some stays, career prosecutors, but they have a pretty high turnover. I think the the difference really is that these are very very prestigious jobs in the states. Uh, some some district attorney jobs are too, but the U.S. attorney system is highly prestigious and very very difficult to get into and attracts the very best candidates, the sort of people who in our system go straight off into city law firms. And I think until our prosecuting agencies, enforcement agencies can begin to attract people of that caliber, you know, comparisons with the United States are always going to have us coming off second best. I've seen the figures and they, they certainly suggest there's a high degree of turnover. And obviously the, the problem with that is unless you have absolutely scrupulous systems of record keeping and continuity of knowledge, it, it can have a devastating effect on casework, particularly investigative work. Uh, and I think the other problem is that one, one of the things I think has always bedeviled the serious fraud office is that they start with a case theory. When the case is taken on, they often have a vision of what 
the case is going to look like after it's been investigated and put in front of a jury. And often that case theory leads the investigators rather than the other way around. There is not the same inclination to just say, well, let's gather some evidence and think about what it tells us rather than let, let's um, start with a case theory and see if we can prove it. Uh, and I think that is that is a systemic problem. Uh, and part of the difficulty in long-running cases is that it's very difficult to change that. Once, once the super tanker is in the water heading along a particular path, uh, even if you get a change of case controller or investigator or even director, it, it's, it's often hard to make a different choice, even if the evidence may be not there to sustain your original case theory. And that, that's, that's always been the problem for the SFO right from 1987 onwards. They've, they have, the cases they've failed on tend to be those cases where they've simply had an overambitious idea about what they could prove. They've ignored the low-lying fraud, which would be perfectly straightforward for them to, to establish, but it wouldn't be serious and it wouldn't be sexy and it might not get the highest echelons of the company involved. Uh, and so they've powered on with often uh, an overcharged indictment and, and sometimes failing with the jury, sometimes failing with the judge at half time because they, they simply aren't able to make good the, the extravagant claims they've made. And, and that, that is a real problem. Finally, let's turn to a few um, uh, uh, random questions, um, which are not directly connected to what we've just been discussing. Are you going to ask me whether we we should abolish the SFO? Because I do, <laughs> I do I do actually have a view on that now. I never I used to be oh well okay I used to be a strong supporter of the idea that the SFO was essential and the structure was good and effective. Uh, and I have to say, gradually over. A, a lifetime's work watching them. I, I'm not, not convinced by that, not because I, I don't think there is virtue in the Roscoe model of having investigators and lawyers sitting in the same room. I think there is. But I think having it in a separate structure ha has led to cases falling in the gaps. I know they shouldn't because it should be clear what's in the SFO territory and what's in CPS territory and what's in the FCA territory and all the other possible players who might prosecute a case. But the reality is that there is a reluctance to take on a case which another agency's rejected. So often, if a case goes to the SFO and they say, no, we're not interested, the CPS are not going to be interested either. And the FCA will say, well, you know, that's not for us, really. It's not really our, our, our thing. And you end up with quite a few cases that fall between the cracks. And, and I, I don't see any need for there to be cracks. I would rather it all went back to the CPS and the CPS had, were given the Section 2 powers in a specialist fraud unit uh, and that they had a remit fraud across the board rather than, for example, going to the NCA, which I think would uh, recreate the same problem. You, you, don't, you shouldn't have two agencies doing the same thing. So I, th I, I think I've come to the view that it would be better to have, have the SFO powers in the CPS and have a single body responsible for fraud, which will take fraud from anywhere 
uh, rather than the split that occurs now. And, and I might even give them the FCA powers as well, because it, it just, to me, it makes no sense to have little pockets of experience all doing the same thing in relation to a, a very rare skill, which is the skill to investigate fraudulent conduct and bring it, put a prosecution together. Yeah, I don't know what the DPP would think about that. I mean, I, I'm inclined to agree with you, actually, Claire. I think this atomization is not helpful. But would you keep the investigators with the um, fraud prosecutors inside the CPS, or would you would you separate them out? Well, my own view is there should be a national fraud investigation unit. As I said to you in one of one of our earlier discussions, I, I think uh, police units are not geared up to investigate serious fraud and often will be distracted by other operational imperatives, particularly local operational imperatives. And those who do take on uh, serious fraud investigations um, are often crippled by the cost of it because they are fantastically expensive. So again, my own view is that there ought to be a specialist fraud investigation unit uh, and that isn't going to be deflected off into other operational requirements, and that can then feed in. I, I, I don't see the necessity for the investigators to sit within within the same organisation as the prosecutors. I don't see any harm in it, and that particularly I don't see any harm where it's a specialist skill like accountancy. So I, I probably would want to see accountant investigators sitting alongside the, whoever the lawyers are in the, in the big CPS fraud unit. But uh, I don't see the necessity for, for boots on the ground. Well, uh, that's very interesting. Although bearing in mind um, what the government's legislative programme is, I suspect that abolishing <laughs> the SFA uh, is not going to happen um, before or by the time Lisa Ostrovsky leaves, uh, and they'll have to. I, I, I don't think I'm abolishing the SFO. I think I'm recreating, <laughs> or recreating but without okay. the gaps. Claire, can we can we end uh, our discussion with, with, with one question, which which stems out of, of course, back to the Roskill report back in the in 1983 one of his recommendations apart from creating a specialist uh, prosecution unit for serious complex fraud was to get rid of juries in uh, complex fraud cases mainly on the grounds that it was not efficient and uh, uh, effective to have juries of lay people um, sitting for months and months investigating complex fraud what, what do you think about that i have always been a supporter of juries for complex fraud cases. I, I think it has many virtues. Uh, firstly, in the particularly in the area of fraud at a level of political or corporate influence, it provides reassurance that the judgment is being rendered by ordinary people and not by the peers of the supposed offender who might otherwise want to protect them. Secondly, I think that it requires prosecutors to concentrate on the really important points in the case and not to overload the evidential picture in a way that is positively beneficial for the interests of justice generally. Uh, and so I think it produces more coherent, better shaped cases perforce because the jury have to be able to understand what's being said. I think if you had judge only, the tendency to throw in the kitchen sink would mean that you get equally long trials just with more material chucked at the judge because nobody has to be particularly discriminating about what goes in front of them. 
Uh, and then thirdly, I, I think there is an issue about um, commercial honesty. That there are many things that happen in the commercial world that commercial peers might think is okay, but the jury jury will have a different view on. And I think because dishonesty is quintessentially a matter that has to be judged at a core level, not with specialist knowledge, it's really vital that we have that barometer of where morality lies being decided by those people who are best placed to decide it rather than some special pleading as to what is or isn't acceptable in the market for X or Y. Yeah, I'm sure you're right about the the situation that would pertain if we had judge alone cases. I'm quite sure that they, they, they would become more complex and, and probably no shorter. And I, I, th- I do think the key argument is that very often, as you've said, it boils down to a question of honesty or dishonesty. And uh, a case which is presented in a way that a jury can understand with that as a key issue um, seems to me the best way to conduct this this sort of uh, process. So I agree with you about this. And, and in terms of the verdicts that I've seen delivered in the cases which I am able to form a, a proper assessment of because I've sat through them, I, I, I've never detected any real pushback by any of the people concerned in the process at the result. I don't think anyone's ever said, oh, that that result only came about because the jury didn't understand it. Most people recognise that, by and large, the jury gets it right, in, even in incredibly complex cases. Well, Claire, it's been fascinating to talk to you uh, about all these subjects, and thank you very much for sparing the time to join us. And uh, no doubt uh, uh, people at the Serious Fraud Office and the Justice Department will have listened very carefully to your recommendations about the future of investigating fraud, and we await developments. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. You've been listening to Double Jeopardy with me, uh, Ken MacDonald, and Tim Owen, uh, and our guest, Claire Montgomery. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Please subscribe to this podcast, um, share it with your friends, um, and, and we hope to be with you again very soon. Our editor, as ever, has been Lily Lawrence. And our social media advisor is Jess Jones.